0: the decision to live or to die can mm-hmm. be a rationally chosen decision and i love how you talk about for example how our conceptual apparatus for suicide is outdated and
1: that maybe the focus should be on system change instead of very much labeling things as, as mental illness the main task of philosophy is, is to prepare us for death This is The Loaf Podcast. Welcome back to The Bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we're very lucky to be sitting down with Simon Critchley, renowned academic and prolific writer and one of the most influential living philosophers. I won't go into too much introductory detail for now. And I think as the interview goes on, his views will make themselves apparent. Simon, thanks. Thanks so much for
2: being with us here today. Thank you, Lucas. And thank you, Oli. How are you? I am fine. I was teaching... Yesterday evening, and it rather exhausted me. But uh, and then I had to have some food and a couple of beers. So I'm feeling <laughs> not, not quite on top of the world, but not too bad. It's a lovely sunny day in New York. Winter does not seem to have happened.
1: <laughs> lovely, lovely. Just just before we get into into the philosophical. More philosophical conversations. We we like to start all our interviews off with uh with a basic question. We ask all our guests what their favorite bread is, and you'd be surprised how much you can find out about a person from the Favorite Bread. <laughs> favorite bread. As the Loaf Podcast. You know, it's kind of our brand.
2: So of course. Uh well, I am. I'm fond of that Scandinavian black bread. Hmm. You know, like Schwarzsport. Yeah.
1: Yeah, pumpernickel. I think, is yeah, called that's
2: as well. And I like sourdough. sourdough.
1: Sourdough, we get sourdough <laughs> a lot. We
0: get sourdough. That's actually our most common answer. We should we should put it in a graph at some point, like a bar chart, but we haven't yet. But yeah, we get sourdough, I'd say like near fifty percent.
2: I also like what's that in English? Was Sunbless, wasn't it? Sunbless, you know, white sliced loaf That's what I grew up with. I mean, bread was in plastic sleeves and you toast yeah, it to, like to get rid of the liquids. So yeah. But uh, bread was made illegal in New York in the 1990s because people don't eat carbohydrates anymore. I'm joking. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, lots, lots of bread, lots of bread. and Lovely. Um, yes. So that's my favourite bread. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just wanted to drop you in a
0: word from our sponsor, Manscaped. You can use the discount code LOAF to get your discount. Even a lion needs to tame its mane.
1: Get the Performance Package 5.0 Ultra from Manscaped now. Stay fresh with no cuts, so that your baguette leaves no crumbs. Great, thank you. Um, now, now to, to maybe move things on to something more. Waity you've got your new book coming out, right? It's coming out in November, I believe, so in, in the autumn, on mysticism, the experience of ecstasy. Could you maybe just um, run us through a little bit about, about the book and, and maybe for our listeners who might not be familiar with mysticism, uh, what mysticism entails?
2: Okay. It is... The book's going to be called over here. It will be called Mysticism, the experience of ecstasy. And... Um... It's about the experience of ecstasy, of being <laughs> outside yourself, of trying to lose yourself. And um, I'm interested in the way in which the people that we call mystics—they didn't call themselves mystics—the medieval mystics, most of them, um, most of them women—that I deal with in the book, Julian of Norwich is a kind of a hero of the the book. They just thought of themselves as intensely religious people, um, and. They were trying to push themselves out of the way in order to make a space where they could be closer to, to God, however, they understood that. And I just I've been fascinated with mysticism as a kind of a counter-concept to to philosophy uh, for a long time. In many ways, mysticism is what modern philosophy. Um, isn't <laughs> in a sense of which, you know, if you, if, you know, you're in a seminar somewhere and someone says, you know, you're a mystic, that's a, a form of abuse, kind of an injury. And that's uh, that history of modern philosophy is one thing I try and challenge in the book. Lots of readings of mystics. And then I end up with um, trying to think about mystical experience in terms of the experience of, uh, of art so, hmm. where, you know, where where does mysticism go once we lose the liturgical um, practices, the monastic environments? What, what happens to mysticism after the Reformation in the modern period? And um, I argue that it gravitates; it moves into aesthetic experience. Talk about that a little bit, and then end up trying to trying to argue for a kind of mystical experience in relationship to music. And um, at that point you can insert whatever music that you like, but I talk about um, some things, some figures that have fascinated me for a long time. And um, yeah. And the, and the, and the claim being that you can't be, you can't be an atheist when you're listening to the music that you love, that when you're listening to the music that you love and you are loving it, even when you're listening to that through a bad streaming service, service, you are, you are participating in something which uh, gives shape and meaning and substance to a life. And uh, I think, and that's something which interests me, music. So, mm-hmm. so it's also a book about music. It also deals with a lot of poetry. I, uh, there's a chapter on T.S. Eliot. Um, oh, lovely. Uh, on four quartets, which I've been avoiding talking about for 40 years.
1: And, I, love, I love that. I, I wrote about it for my exams.
2: Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, so he he, he cites um, uh, Julian of Norwich is one of the the key figures in uh, in Little Gidding, the last of the the last of the quartets. So I try to follow that through, and um, yeah, and it's it's also it's also about place. Uh, it turns out there's a there's a lot of a uh, lot of England in the, in the book here and there. I mean, there's that line in Four Quartets where he says, you know, "History is now in England." And there's this strange kind of patriotism to um, to Eliot's verse, which is um, which is one thing. And then I I'm, I'm trying to think about yeah the way in which uh, we're connected to place as also um, having a a sacral dimension, as uh, the podcaster Tom Holland would put it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think something I'd want to unpack about the book on mysticism is I think. As a paradox, not necessarily a contradiction, but there's something paradoxical in a philosophical book on mysticism because yes. the traditional associations of philosophy, rationality, mysticism, perhaps irrationality, at least in common culture. Do you try yes. and work to reconcile those and put it in the place? I, I take it on
2: and sort of smash it to pieces. I mean, modern philosophy is premised upon the opposition to what Kant called a uh, Schwemmerei, uh, enthusiasm uh, fanaticism which he associated with the mystics of his day the person he was most worried worried by was a guy called swedenborg who had huge influence in england actually blake was a swedenborgian and lots of other people too and um he was so in a sense the way modern philosophy gets set up is philosophy is critical rational um it is skeptical of any claims to the divine, and um, and that's what we have to teach our students. And then we, we reverse engineer that into an understanding of the history of philosophy as leading up to this critical, rational, secular practice. And I think that uh, fundamentally misses what philosophy was about for most of its history, which is a connection between philosophy and religion, philosophy and the experience of the divine, however that is conceived. And it's the different traditions in which that's conceived. I also think that um, the idea that the obligation of the philosopher is uh, is critique, 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 critique is sort of over is overdone. And at this point in history, I think we need something more like understanding, something like comprehension of complicated worldviews rather than. Uh, the critical annihilation of them. So I think the way in which modern philosophy has been constructed is largely, is, it, it, in the context, say, that I was educated in, was overwhelmingly secular. And people that were religious were seen as kind of a bit dim or weak-minded. And I think that is um, that is a horrible misapprehension of things. And... and and, you know, and, and there are people that thought that, you know, religion would go away. There were evangelical atheists or are evangelical atheists like Dawkins. And um, we think it's just wrong and it will go away. And clearly it's not going away. There are two billion Christians and uh, and a huge amount of Muslims. And, and things are so just in the Abrahamic side of things, uh, it's doing very well. And we have to understand that and grasp it. And at the core of all those religious traditions is something which gets is something which is um something which is mystical and that's true in is- islamic tradition jewish tradition christian tradition i focus more on the christian tradition and the way in which that uh folds over into uh you know f- folds over into the modern experience of, of art and literature so that's kind of where that's yeah but it's yeah
1: i mean i mean help help me out here just because you, you speak about understanding but f- my issue right now when doing the research about mysticism is that it is quite vague, and and I was wondering what you think is is are the necessary factors for an alleged mystical experience. I, I read on the Stanford Online Encyclopedia that mm-hmm. um, it, it's ineffability and paradoxicality. I'm not sure to what extent you agree. I'm not sure what kind of factors you will talk about in your upcoming book, but I was wondering if you could elucidate uh, elucidate on that a little bit. Ineffability and paradoxicality and ineffability yeah. in the sense that, yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's inexplicable and, and there are, that has its own problems. Cause I suppose once you start trying to explain ineffability, then it, that starts to become, um, well, explaining the unexplainable, but, but yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, one way mysticism, uh, in many ways goes back to Um, for as long as there have been human beings, there's been something like mystical experience. But the um, ineffability really turns on uh, whether you can express uh, God positively, whether God is something you can affirm. God exists. God is this or that. And there's a tradition that begins with someone called Dionysius in around the fifth century of the Christian era, era, which... uh, Begins this tradition of what's called negative apophatic theology, where God cannot be, uh, God cannot be uh, propositionally determined in, a, in, a, in an affirmative way, but only approached negatively. So, what you find with a lot of mystics is they engage in a particular operation with language. It's a kind
1: of well, that's what Milton. That's what Milton does, known Paradise Lost
2: yeah yeah or it's what eliot does in four quartets it's a kind of it's a kind of constant negation of what is being said in order to open uh, something up which which cannot be said and to move through to, through paradox that the you know the i mean christianity um, is premised upon an absolute paradox that the divine mm. becomes becomes human the incarnation is intensely paradoxical and the um and mystical practices, um, they they arise in in communities, in groups. Um, they're often, I mean, very. It, it's an, an idea of seeing your life as a as an itinerary, as as having a series of of steps. A lot of mystic, mystical books, like of how to books, um, mm. and um, and and the interesting thing about mysticism is that it. It exists and it circulated as as a popular tradition. So the, if you like the uh, the warrantability or validity of uh, mystical texts is not is is through the fact that they they circulated. They had enormous popular appeal. So it's a very different uh, kind of canonical tradition from mainstream religion or, or philosophy. Often there aren't original texts. We have copies of copies that circulated in fragments and they moved around in different translations and there's a enormous. They, they always had enormous popular appeal. Also, another thing which is interesting is that the mystical tradition, certainly in Northern Europe, uh, goes together with the, the rise of the vernacular tradition. So the first text that we have in English, Medieval, French, uh, and different German dialects, and in in Flemish, are, are very often mystical texts. So, in a sense, there's something about the move to the the vernacular, which is happening in in, in mysticism. So, it's it's, it's a popular um, and kind of lowbrow tradition which interests me. And um, I'm sure you'll love the book. I've just been I've just finished. I've had the most difficult editing process on it. Um, uh, in in New York, there's this yeah editors work we still work with pencil on paper, and I've spent the last month you know reorganizing sentences. And it's just sitting across the table from me, the <laughs> version I, I sent off on Monday, and uh, I don't want to look I don't want to talk about it anymore, but it's
1: It's, it's going to be great. yeah I mean'll we'll, we'll put the the link in the description to pre-order that for for everyone watching and, and or listening and yes. and you can, you can pre-order that now, so uh, we're, we're looking forward.
2: Well, I thank you. It's a, uh, there's, there's the plug for the, the plug for the new.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move it on for you then. Um, I want to ask you about, I really enjoyed your book on humor. Thank you. And particularly the boundary, something which after reading, it's sort of like, you've got a new piece of vocabulary. I could almost see it as I was going around your idea of the humor existing between the human animal boundary and the kind of contradictions inherent in that. Just before mm-hmm. we get into that, could you maybe, Try and sum that up as briefly and as clearly as possible as you can for our listeners. Oh, the
2: human animal relation. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, um, the humor book was written, uh, a long time ago. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm still happy with that one. It's, um, cause I, what I like to do philosophically, um, is to hide things. um, So I I try and write in a a way that is accessible and free of jargon and to have things kind of underneath the surface. So you can approach, you you know, everybody understands what humor is. They think they they know what a good joke is, what a bad joke is, and so on and so forth. So when it comes to humor, everyone's an expert. So it's a very good sort of stealth topic for introducing philosophical themes. And um, that's the first thing. And I like to, so I like to keep, um, you know, a, a surface of the text being very clear, and then to have all of these larger philosophical themes sort of under under the surface, but without them getting in the way of the the clarity of the prose. And the um, the idea is that humor, I guess, is the um, Humour is the mark of the eccentricity of human beings. So, humour happens when we uh, we look at ourselves from outside ourselves, and we find ourselves ridiculous, and we laugh. So, in a sense, the essence of humour is finding yourself ridiculous, and we are ridiculous creatures. Human beings are out. I think I think I say outlandish animals. And, Borrowing from a a little remark that Wittgenstein makes somewhere, I think, about us being outlandish animals. So there's lots to say about that, that the, you know, that humor is human. I mean, there's a whole tradition which begins in with the Greeks that, you know, what it's only only human beings laugh. Um, And I try and tease that one out a little bit. It's, you know, if you see if you see a chimpanzee smiling, it might be laughing or it might be about to attack you or sexually assault you or something. Um, So the bearing of teeth is uh, often a sign of aggression rather than the mirth. So so humour is a kind of um, a mark of the human, but the mark of the human being sort of ridiculous has not coincided with itself and in relationship to animals i mean animals appear in you know the history of literature i mean all over the place you know human beings um uh, you know you know in a sense being kind of uh, there's an animal farm version of that uh human beings being sort of lower than animals worse than animals the view that um Jonathan Swift has in Gulliver's Travels that we are we are Yahoos and the rational animals are the Quinims, which are thinking horses and so on and so forth. So, but the, the key the key idea is really that we are um, we do not coincide with ourselves. There's a wonderful German expression uh, which I use in that book, as I remember, which is uh, "Ich bin aber ich habe mich nicht." I am, but I do not have myself. So what human beings are is we're we are beings we're you know we're alive we're thinking and feeling but we don't coincide with ourselves right and that not coinciding with yourself is the experience of self consciousness if you like and that really happens I think most acutely in in, in great comedy in great comedy you are uh, you are kind of you're forced to look outside yourself and find yourself ridiculous. And, and laughter. What, what's great about laughter is that if you can get people to laugh, you can open them up, and then you can hit them with some nasty, unpleasant truth about them themselves. <laughs> I mean, that's it's, it's brilliant how you talk
1: about kind of almost watching the self or, or, or looking at the self, yeah. and, and then may, perhaps even making fun of, of the self. And Ollie and I, we. It's, it's, it's interesting because our humor is often playing, we play characters, for example, perhaps overly intellectual characters and, and we put on voices and, and, and then we, we almost, um, we almost mock those characters that we play because, because mm-hmm. perhaps some parts of us sees, sees ourselves as, as sometimes too intellectual or, or so, or so on and so forth. But I think this idea of self-consciousness within humor is really important. And I think obviously self-consciousness is something that is at least in my view, uh, separates us from from animals. As I was wondering, do you think when a monkey laughs, to what extent is that a really different kind of humor to to a human's experience?
2: Yeah, well we don't know, you know, if a lion could talk, we would not understand him as Wittgenstein says. So we don't know. They could be they could be involved. Uh, there could be a whole kind of, you know, chimpanzee stand up culture that we're not really <laughs> because we're not really getting the, the act. Um yeah. I think if you look at the behavior of uh, higher mammals like dolphins, it's clear that they're playing. There's clear that there is play um, as you know. Another way of thinking about us: we're playful creatures. Homo ludens, as the great Dutch um, uh, ethnographer Hausinger argued, that we are we're playful, and that extends beyond us. Animals play. Um, Cat play, but is humour confined to just us? I I don't know. I mean, it's um, I mean certainly in relation to philosophy. I mean, what particularly interests me is that in um, I think that a lot of the things that we we want philosophy to do to get us to step outside ourselves and question our presuppositions are things which happen in the hands of a really good stand up comedian. Right, it's a kind of philosophical mm. investigation, but it's one which is you—you know—you're not intimidated or overawed by it because you know what's funny, right? And if it, it's funny, it's funny, and it's not, it's not. But a good stand-up comedian, someone like in in Britain, someone like Stuart Lee, who's my uh, my favourite stand-up comedian. I mean, what he's doing in his long stand-up routines is is a level of philosophical. Uh, self-examination, uh, which is, which is extraordinary. And, uh, and so I think it's often, you know, so what, again, what interests me is that there are everyday practices that human beings engage in like telling jokes, which have inherent philosophical content and value. Mm -hmm. And those things need to be examined more closely and not seen as some kind of non-serious, uh, minor issue. I think it's a really important thing. So can can everyone do philosophy? Well, if people can laugh, if people can get jokes and laugh at themselves, in a sense, you've got them on the road to something philosophical.
0: Mm. Well, I think there's a distinction between two kinds of humour and it's one you draw in the book and it kind of spills into the discussion we were just having between, Mm -hmm. um, and humour has a fraught relationship here to social norms, between humour that affirms social norms and those that critique it. So for example prejudice, humor against minorities, affirm social norms, and you find those people ridiculous. You're stepping from outside of them. Whereas humor that can critique a social norm might find somebody who's in power ridiculous, for example, or our own ways of doing things is ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. in that way, I wanted to ask what you think of um, kind of the topical issue of a lot of conservative leaning comedians. Like, for example, with Dave Chappelle, people saying, well, you can't, you can't make any jokes anymore and there's right. closed off. Do you think we should be working at closing off that side of humor, or I mean,
2: yeah, where do you Chappelle, stand on that? Yeah, Chappelle's an interesting case because I mean, you know, he's he's always his routines have become about I can't do comedy anymore. Nobody finds it. He can't tell jokes anymore, and he's doing this in you know Netflix specials for which he's getting tens of millions of dollars. So there is a there is a contradiction there, and also I think Chappelle is someone that. Uh, when chapelle's when Chappelle is talked about it's always in terms of the 30 men 30 seconds sequence where he says something offensive to somebody mm-hmm. about so you know <laughs> did michael jackson do it or not but the it's you know Chappelle, uh you know i see Chappelle in a tradition that goes back to to lenny bruce and uh and with lots of stops in between, and obviously Richard Pryor, where it's the form of the show, the hour-long form of the stand-up routine. And you've got to stay with the form. And Chappelle really respects the form. And he will give certain jokes, and then there'll be callbacks to previous jokes, and he will tease the audience, open them up, get them to love him, and then he'll say something deeply offensive to them, and then often run back to the back of the stage and then come back at them again. So I think, uh, just formally, I mean, he's a he's a he's a brilliant comedian. But the idea that you um, he's uh, you know you can't, you can't tell any jokes anymore, can you? There's a line in the book which I like because it's not by me. It's from this. Uh, there was a a play I think it was done on uh, on the BBC in the 1970s called Comedians by some called Trevor Griffiths. And it's about uh, a comedy class in Manchester in the 1970s and people who were, want to become comedians. And this older comedian called Eddie Waters is trying to explain how it's done. And he says, a real comedian, that's a daring man. He dares to see what his listeners shy away from, fear to express. And what, uh, what he sees is a sort of truth about people, about their situation, about what hurts or terrifies them about what's hard above all, about what they want. A joke releases the tension, says the unsayable. Any joke pretty well. But a true joke, a comedian's joke, has to do more than release tension. It has to liberate the will and the desire. It has to change the situation. So any joke that just affirms social norms, I mean, that's easy, right? Any, you know, any idiot can do that, uh, or the way in which most comedy will work through you know, comedy of recognition. Isn't it funny what happens when you go to the supermarket and so on and so forth? Um, but a true comedian is uses those norms and then flips them. And in a sense, you you are you are implicated in the social norms that maybe you affirm. So in in a sense, to to tell say to tell say a racist joke or a a chauvinist joke or whatever, get the audience to laugh and then to hit them with what they laughed at right? And mm. then to mm. get them to think through the implications of that. And um, you know, and again, Stuart Lee does this really well. You know, political correctness has gone mad, right? Critical has gone mad. You know, I used to be you know, the old days when you could just tell racist jokes about Asians <laughs> and worry about it. And it's, you know, it's it, you know, what exactly is uh, so I don't buy that. I think that the, there's a uh, I think that Comedy is, um, you know, uh, it's you know, it's okay. It's okay. I, mean, I think there's there are there's good and bad stuff, but the mm-hmm. but the the willingness to be uh, opened up by a joke and to find yourself ridiculous, to feel yourself implicated by the joke, I think is a way of challenging the social norms of a particular society. Mm. I think that. You know, I think the humor is liberatory. I think there's an interesting moral question with it as well, because
0: personally, uh, well, we all have to admit, we've all laughed at an offensive joke sometimes. Sure. And um, the question is, obviously, the Kantian uh, aphorism, ought implies can. You know, mm-hmm. there's an interesting thing of people saying, well, you shouldn't laugh at that. Mm-hmm. What do you think the response to that that should be, for example? Because it's all well and good saying, oh, well, that's offensive. We shouldn't be doing that kind of humor. But yeah. what, do you think that it reveals something darker in us that, that we do find it funny or that we should try not to? How do you think we should navigate that?
2: I think we should uh, you know, investigate all those dark corners all the time. And we should. Uh, and we should. The idea of things being ruled out of bounds, I think is a it's has kind got of a slippery, slippery slope. I mean, you know, I forget who said that. Maybe it's Stuart Lee again. Who talked about the um, the uh, the stage that the comedian is on as having a huge set of scare quotes around the side? Right? The stage is huge mm-hmm. quotation marks. Everything is said in a sense with with that. You know, it's said with a kind of uh, ironical citational force. And uh, what you're trying to do is to force people to experience. Uh, the truth of who they are a little bit more deeply. If you do that through initially comforting them, get them on your side, then that's a mechanism you can then use to kind of open them up and get them to really. So I think I think comedy is and should be uh, deeply unsettling, and so therefore, so a comedy that just lines up with a certain moral view of the world, I think, is is kind of missing the point. There can be it has to be no holds bar, no holds barred, or or nothing at all for me.
1: I mean, just just to to come back to a or to link this to a different form of entertainment, which which you write about. I think, first of all, I I really I really enjoy the way that you speak about everyday everyday things like comedy or music or or football. Speak and and speaking of football, you you defend football, and I was one, and and that is in light of for example the fact that it's sometimes seen as a hooligans game so so football is as as I understand it cuz sometimes blamed for encouraging antisocial behavior and I, I know you recognize these problems I was I was wondering if you could briefly summarize your your stance on on this
2: uh on the beautiful game it's um on the
1: beautiful game yeah precisely
2: it's, it's i think that um kind of everything that I want to be true philosophically is really only true of uh, of football. I mean, you know, I think so the book I wrote on football is a short book. um, It's it was really funny how much I was able to get in it about space, time. The relationship between the individual and the collective history Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. It's kind of um, it's an extraordinary phenomenon, um and, and it's again like again like like humor if you like the um the great thing about football is you can't feel good about it it is a it's a completely compromised um form of life form of entertainment sport that the um you know you can support your team love the way a certain team plays but the whole thing is made possible by you know the dark movements of of money, and now sports washing, and now state ownership of of football teams like Newcastle United and um, others, and Manchester City, in a way, and um, and it's both at the same time. So there's a, there's a beauty to it, and there's a there's a horror, and it's those two things mm-hmm. at once that interest me. So I think it's it's um, so football. I think is a way of yeah experiencing that that deep contradiction between the the form of football which is association you know and some people have said is a kind of socialism and there's a whole long tradition of that on the one hand and on the other hand the kind of material uh, content of football what makes it possible which is which is money which is which is capital and to be a fan is to to experience both and um, I think it's you know it's a it, it, it's it's a it's a fantastic, um, again, invitation to thinking. Because if you can get people to, uh, you know, think, of you this, know, you you love football. You people got this extraordinary levels of knowledge about football, and then to invite them to think about those things a little bit further, and a bit more philosophically, um, it's quite easy to do. Because it's you know that's kind of part of my. I'm mean, sorry,
1: sorry to, to interrupt but could you give us an example just because someone might not really be familiar with, with your stance and an example of how you might take an ordinary football situation and really put a philosophical spin on it
2: Right so the um, yeah, for example um, okay time um, philosophers have been arguing for the last hundred years about the, is time linear uh, or is time something else? So philosophers like Bergson and uh, then Heidegger have said, well, there is this linear idea of time. Time is a, a, an unending sequence of nows. So it's present, and it's not yet, no longer present. It's the past or it's the present to come. And this is a sort of a linear understanding of time, a series of nows. And with a, a, a football game, you have that—you know—the you ninety minutes of the game lined up. On the other hand, the experience of time in relation to the game changes. You can actually feel time slow down and speed up when you're when you're watching a game. Uh, if your team is. Uh, a goal up and you want the, the the game to finish, your time feels incredibly slow. If you're in the opposite position, time feels incredibly fast. So the experience of time as a as a nonlinear, almost ecstatic, uh lived experience of time, which the phenomenological tradition has been trying to argue for. You can see that in um in football. And also space, that you know, um what is it to what is it to really uh what is it what is it really to occupy a lived idea of space not an objective three-dimensional kind of geometrical idea of space but space as we encounter it in the everyday world and uh you know the footballers are just interpreters of space right they're people that can open space who can move in a certain way and create space or there's a Great line about the um the German false nine Thomas Müller who is referred to as the 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 Raumdeuter, like the space interpreter. And so the points that philosophers certainly from the traditions that I'm closest to have been trying to make about space and time, you can you can see and show in relationship to a football game. And there's lot there's lots Mm. more we can say as well.
0: Another one for me, um I'm going to be slightly pretentious here, so I apologize to my listeners, but um, is in Meriology. So it's the philosophy of the relations of holes to their parts, how a, a few things make up a thing, like what makes up a bicycle. And I think there's a really interesting question there um, about what makes up a team. And that's one of the critiques of football is like, oh, you know, it's so superficial that you support this team, but they've changed over the years and they're not the same team as they were anymore. Um, and I was wondering how you would what what your meriology of a, of a football team would be and what you think persists
2: right it, 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 this is it's, it's an interesting question because you've got the I mean the holes and parts example now would be something like you know Chelsea has spent a billion pounds or whatever on all these parts, but they can't make it into a hole, right It's just a bunch of individuals who are not functioning as a team. so a team has to work as a as a team as a mobile matrix of uh, of of individuals who function as a coherent whole which is continually moving continually reacting to what the other team is doing and um the um and the the extraordinary thing about football for for me you know is the um that those parts can change you can get new players from wherever but you can still integrate them into the whole of a team and integrate that team into a lived experience of the the history of of a team and how that relates to to identity to family to who you are so in my case my family are from liverpool my team is liverpool Football club, and really the only—if I think about what does, what is my connectionship? My what is my connection to the past? My real lived connection with the past is through that team. It was a team that my my grandmother supported, my father was passionate about, and I've contaminated my son with the same <laughs> the same things. So he's a, he's a passionate Liverpool fan, and he, he he wants to he wants to support other teams, but I didn't let him. It's a bit a bit, you know, a bit cruel when he was nine years old. But he thanks me for it now, I suppose. But the point is that there you have, you know, an individual life, in this case mine, where, where things are unified by a hundred years of support for this team and what this team means in relationship to a place, that place being Liverpool. And that's also something which has the possibility of a future, that my son will go on supporting Liverpool after I'm, I'm dead. I mean, what can you, what do you bequeath? I mean, what do you, what, what, what can you inherit? I
1: mean, I think, after, after you're dead, or, or more importantly, after Klopp leaves.
2: After Klopp leaves, yeah. <laughs> well, Klopp, 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 has understood the, the nature of the connection between that team and the city and the kind of, uh, I feel like, the fantasy of it. It's, he's, he he understands that and he, he's treated people well, Yeah, I'm I'm very sorry to see him go. And and Klopp, you know, another thing I do in the book is I try and talk about Klopp as a uh, Klopp as a Heideggerian because he's you know he's from he's from that you know he's from southern Germany. He's not not a million miles away. And in a sense, what Klopp is trying to do with, with, with 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 football is is to produce a kind of uh to produce what he calls moments, instance of, of ecstasy. Uh, that's a very kind of Heideggerian approach. And and to and to live that and to live that uh collectively. Um you know and that's that's so I think the and also the the strange thing about where we are in in the world is that you know Britain used to be known for different things. You know, it used to be known at being Good at music, but now it's really footballs. The footballs, the prime cultural product of international product of, of Britain, and of course yeah. it's by people who are not who are not English, which is even better. So it, there is a kind of I wouldn't say cosmopolitanism. I don't like that, but there's a, there's a you know people have a different understanding of geography because of the teams that they support, and of course there's xenophobia, of course there's racism, and of course there's all of that. But still, it's um it's one of the few areas of human life where I feel, despite everything, vaguely hopeful. And also, it's a way of connecting mm. with people. You know, I can connect with people. You know, I, I wear my Liverpool gear in my neighborhood, and, and you see a, you know, someone says, Oh, you're a Liverpool fan?" Well, my neighborhood is a big Arabic neighborhood. So uh, if you're wearing it, people will point at you and go, Salah. And they will talk <laughs> about Mohammed Salah because they're from Yemen or from uh, Sudan and they, So, and it, so it starts conversations and it's, um, Mm. and, and also it's, it's a a sphere where, um, everyone is an expert. I'm quite interested in those areas where everyone's an expert, humor, football, music. It's interesting what you say about the geography,
0: because I'm, um, nominally a Liverpool football fan as well, because my dad's a Scouser. Um, and I do feel sort of like this connection to Liverpool. Yeah. Even though I've only been a few times and when I was younger, but, um, yeah, the anecdote you gave about forcing your son to be a Liverpool football fan. I grew up near the Chelsea training grounds. Um, and so when I was younger, I was a Chelsea fan. Right. And my dad, I'd ask him for Chelsea Kit, and you, you said the exact same anecdote in your book, which I found funny. I'd ask him for a Chelsea Kit, and for Christmas, I' got a Liverpool kit, That's and right. eventually it worked. <laughs>
2: That's why I did. <laughs> I mean it's yeah, I mean you know, we should yeah. I mean it's I I'm I I'm I am i am always in the conversion business when it comes to football. I'm trying you know, when friends of mine they are kids are interested in football, I sort of go over there, show them games, buy them memorabilia and say, you know, come on board, join the church, it's great. But um <laughs> it's a feeling of um connection to something which is which is deep and which is um yeah. I mean, it's some pleasure a local firm. Yeah. Mm.
0: <laughs> Bringing it back to um, your mention of Heidegger earlier. Yes. I think football is actually one of the key examples of, and you can explain it a bit as well, but the key examples of what Heidegger calls understanding, which he sees as our primary mode of interaction with the world, um, which is kind of a precognitive um, reckoning with things around you that aren't objects, but equipment that, that chair, for example, is something to sit on or to move around. And I think football is maybe one of the best ways to explain that to people, because like you say in the book, the the pitch is more than a, a green space with white lines. You, you're allowed to go in there and you're not allowed to go in there. And you can, if you're a goalkeeper, you can hold hold it in your hands in the box um, and you can't outside. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think maybe it's something you should bring to a ply digger is uh, maybe a bit of a crossover to help explain.
2: Maybe yeah. we're we're going to do a second series at some point in the next year, uh, so maybe I'll, I'll I'll bring that out. I mean, it's it's a but it's true. I mean, we have, um, I mean, the idea of the uh, the basic distinction in Heidegger you get between the ready to hand, the handy, so the world the world for Heidegger is just a handy world, the practical world that we live in, and in that practical world there's stuff um things and those things have uh we use them in order to do things. I use the microphone in order to speak to you. And those things have their their goal, their their tailos in, in me, in, in, in human beings, uh understood collectively. And we um and you know the that sort of sense of the, the world as, as a practical what Heidegger would call in his in his jargon, a kind of referential totality of equipment. So a way in which things hold together and are meaningful. Um, that, that's one thing. But how do you um think about that relationship to football? Um, when people are are playing and they know what they're doing, um, they are they're in that kind of ready-to-hand experience. But then you can also pull them out of that into something present at hand. You can say, Well, here's a new tactical organization we're going to use. Um I want you uh I was listening to a podcast of the other day about well Ollie Watkins for Aston Miller. I want you, Ollie Watkins, not to drift wide when you're playing, but to stay, keep your play within the uh the the dimensions of the penalty box and not to go either side. And just to so he he has to take that present at hand with theoretical awareness and then through training and inculcation for that to become a ready-to-hand practical disposition that he can use. So, um, yeah, so those Heideggerian points are, are kind of can be made very well in relationship to football as about the points about space and, and time and uh, uh, one's relationship to others. You know, that football is not an individual sport. It's a collective sport, which is like being within Heidegger and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, you, you have, sorry, sorry, sorry to jump in here. No, I, I, I wanted to quickly, for those who don't know and are listening, you have, you have a podcast, Apply Degger, And, and I think, I think Heidegger is notoriously difficult to understand, notoriously, you know, scary. I mean, people, people right now listening might even, even flinch at the, at the mention of, of Heidegger's name because he is really just so, so complex. And uh, I was wondering through your podcast uh, bringing the wisdom of heidegger and um to kind of a wider audience who aren't necessarily you know focused in on this niche of uh, philosophical uh, discussion well, what do you think the benefits are of of applying for example heidegger's teachings to my life to your life and and how can can the average human being use the use the teachings and the wisdom of heidegger to to live a better life
2: right it's a very good question i mean the the um, I think it can, and I think it's um, it, in many ways. Heidegger offers a series of reminders for what we already know, how we already go about our uh, our life in the world with other people, and and um, so in a sense, you know, there's that line in Wittgenstein about you know philosophy being taking the form of reminders, I think it's true that. Uh, so Heidegger is reminding us of something which we already know implicitly and making explicit conceptually. But the difficulty with Heidegger is that he does that in uh, in in his in his German, which is you know he's I mean Heidegger's philosophical uh, gambit, which is uh, extraordinary, is that um, the whole language of modern philosophy, mind, world. Subject, object, the primacy of, say, epistemology, um, uh, the primacy of a scientific view of the world, naturalism, all of these things, they're not wrong, but they're secondary to our lived experience of being in the world. So Heidegger uh, sets about developing his own vocabulary for that, his own kind of personal language Uh and that's one thing in German. But when that's translated, it's absolutely hideous. So that the Macquarie Robinson translation of Being in Time, which is one of the the great philosophical translations, is is it's it's intolerable, horrible to to read. So my but my conviction is that the the ideas in Heidegger are are simple, uh, they're compelling, and you've got to get people past the surface of the text. To the ideas, and in a way that they can they can use and, and make sense of, and I think you can do that. So, in a sense, what, what I'm doing right now is we're turning that uh, podcast. I'm teaching Heidegger again, as uh, what I was doing last night, and uh, we're trying just to go for the ideas and to ignore the surface difficulty of the text, and then to see if those ideas are ideas that we can make sense of and, and use. And I think they are. And I think it's there's a there is a uh, I mean Heidegger's thinking is really really simple. Yeah. Um, it's about meaning. We live in a, a world which is significant. Um, the world just makes sense, not in a deep way, but it just it just hangs together in a certain way. And uh, the second point is that there is movement. We're constantly in movement. Things are moving all the time. That's that's our, our our life in time. So how do you think together, meaning and movement? And philosophy tends to uh, tends towards the static. You know, in the sense that you you uh, you take the, the the buzzing, blooming confusion of experience, and you kind of freeze dry that into a set of concepts, a, a metaphysical picture. There are philosophers that are you know beyond that, like Hegel, but still. So, so Heidegger, how do you, how do you, how do you describe meaning and movement is kind of where I begin?
0: You said you're teaching Heidegger. If you feel like you haven't got enough students or you want to do it more, I'm taking a final in it next year.
1: So feel free. I just want to say, because, because it, it is interesting that, you know, Ollie's doing Heidegger and, and to bring it back even to my course, English literature and, you know, in you, you're constantly, I feel talking about English literature, which is, Yes, uh, and, and bringing that into into contact with with philosophy, and which I do myself all the time, and and just to kind of pick out something that I I heard when I was listening to the first episode of Applied Degger, you you say you know ask whichever object is around you a table a chair a bed whether it experiences Hamlet's question to be or not to be, and I thought I thought that was I was kicking myself because I just wrote a paper uh for my for my finals about. German analysis of German readings of Hamlet, um, showing Hamlet to be extremely self-reflective, and and this this idea of self-consciousness, and I think in relation to Heidegger, it it just provides such a, a wealth of new interpretations. The idea of Hamlet being self-conscious. Uh, as being kind of the epitome of, of, of the human condition, which, which also relates back to this, this idea of experience and and this idea of being design to be or not to be. And, 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 and then obviously that, that relates then, which, which I think we'll get into in a moment maybe to, to close up, but, but the idea of, of, of living itself and the, and the question of death, you know, and suicide uh, to be or not to be.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I mean, I began, um, uh you know i mean the way in for me was literature um you know i had a misspent youth and it, it's a long story but then i went to university to do literature and then i found that people that were teaching literature to be oh i don't know um i, I could imagine if i were cleverer or had more experience i could imagine doing what they did uh but the philosophers that taught me were bewildering they just seemed a different level of intelligence so i gravitated towards that but literature has always been the way in and always what i go go back to so it's hugely important for me, to, uh, to me and i think that you know the uh, theater in particular um and you know i wrote a book called um on, on greek tragedy which is you know it, it's basically uh greek tragedy beats philosophy really <laughs> greek tragedy <laughs> beats Plato and Aristotle around the head. And, you know, what you've got in a play is uh, any interesting play, you've got three, four competing points of view, which are being debated, played out, um, different philosophical conceptions, if you like. And, you know, when we turn to Hamlet, you know, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's all there. I mean, um, I think it's, it's, it's endlessly endlessly fascinating and, and so rich with, uh, with possibilities. And, and obviously, you know, the, um, the Hamlet that we think of as ours in, um, in Britain is largely a German invention of the, you know, mid 18th century. That's when it's the Germans that really get the, you know, uh, find the depth in, in, in Shakespeare and, uh, in, in Hamlet in particular. And, um, so, um, you know, English interpretations of, of Shakespeare were rather kind of flat-footed until uh, German Romanticism turned up. So, um, and Hamlet is the supremely self-conscious being. He's the you know the philosopher par excellence, the uh, the melancholic, the most intelligent man you could ever imagine meeting or being. You know, mm. and. Where does it go? It kind of goes nowhere. It goes into endless doubt and division. And um, and he cannot act. He can't do the simple thing that's asked of him. Avenge me, his father's ghost says. And he can't do it. And that's why it's also the longest play that we can imagine, because Hamlet keeps devising these cunning stratagems, like the play within the play. Um, and when he finally gets his way, and Claudius seems to confess. Uh, and there he is, and Hamlet is on his way to see his mother. And that's another story. He has his sword drawn, and then he doesn't kill him because he thinks, ah, oh, this would be the wrong time to kill him because he's at prey, soul's going to go to heaven. I'll wait. And so Hamlet is the paradigm for doubts and the the fa- the way in which philosophical intelligence can lead to inaction paralysis for me and uh, but then that means you've got other things in the play you've got like Ophelia who's the the kind of counterweight to to uh, Hamlet and um, so yeah but I think you can I think you can and what I try and do sometimes with the teaching that I do is just to take a play like Hamlet and we read it in class do this with undergraduates in particular, we just read the play out loud together and then interpret it. And I think that, and that takes a semester and then and then you can bring mm. in all the fascinating interpretations mm. that there are of it. And it really mm. opens things up and people feel, again, people feel that they, you know, they might be a little bit intimidated by Shakespeare, but they feel like they're, you know, they're, they can get inside it and, uh, And it's it's all there and everything is there in Shakespeare. It never ceases to bewilder me. I'm just listening uh, this week, uh, or watching, sorry, late late at night, um, this wonderful production, uh, The Hollow Crown of Richard II, because I've been thinking about that issue of uh, what it means to give up power. uh, And, you know, the, it's, I mean, whether this is, you know, how this happened, I don't know, but, but Shakespeare always seems to me to be so far ahead of us right? Um, mm. in whatever we're doing. And is that a trick of the language, a trick of history? I don't know, but it, it's, it's just true. So it feels like we're constantly trying to catch up to that. Yeah. One of the things that literature
0: is interesting that you use it in your philosophy. Um, Cause one of the things that literature does for me is it can make philosophical ideas click in a way that, Otherwise, you might just cognitively understand them. I don't know if it'd be anti-cognitive or non-cognitive, or how, however you'd want to formulate it. But like to be or not to be, for example, that helped me in in notes on suicide um, to kind of help click that you know the decision to live or to die can be a rationally chosen decision. And I love how you talk about, for example, um, how our conceptual apparatus for suicide is outdated in that either somebody's mentally ill. And so you can excuse them for it or there's like some, something quite negative to it. If they've chosen it, then, you know, there's quite a lot of associations of cowardice, et cetera. And I think Hamlet helps to bring that home that it can be that rational choice.
2: Yes, it can be. It can be And the, the book on suicide is a bit a, it's a funny one because I mean, I, I wrote that, uh, I was asked to write that, um, it was kind of a commission, I suppose, but the, um, I'd done this uh, work. I use the, the term loosely. I'd done this. I'd read this book, um, uh, a dissertation on suicide from the eighteenth century, and um, and this is part of the radical enlightenment. And it's a long story. And I, I and I began to get interested in the the history of the prohibition against suicide. Why is it that, that suicide was prohibited? Why is it judged as being, why is it judged morally? Why does it become a taboo? And um, and there's nothing in um, there's nothing in uh, the Christian Gospels, there's nothing in uh, Jewish scripture uh, against suicide. There's one sutra in the Quran about suicide. Uh, it's not a big issue. It becomes a big issue in the Uh, In the medieval period, when we get this idea that the life is a a, life is given by by God and uh, and we do not have dominion over that life. Therefore, to kill ourselves is to give ourselves a a godlike power and it's a sin. And that then becomes codified into law, into the different legal systems, in particular the European legal systems. And that's why suicides were um treated in various ways they were their their property was lost they were dug up and hung or whatever they were and and i was looking into that i mean why do people react the way they do to the issue of suicide and how do we how do we shift our opinions about that that taboo and i think i think that things are shifting i mean i think the Hopefully, that book will be, you know, an outdated relic in uh, in the years to come. Because I think I think the discussion of suicide has become slightly more mature and uh, developed. And that I think is. I was listening yesterday to this um, member of parliament in Britain who, uh, from I forget where he was, somewhere out there in the the shires, who had um, talked about um a suicide attempt in 2021. He made a statement in the House of Commons about that. And that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago because it would have been dishonorable, a sign of weakness. And yet this is something that you know we need to think about. And then the and the thing connected to that is uh that when I did the second edition of that that book in 2020, uh, for the great Fitzcarraldo uh publishers and Jacques Testard and those lovely people. And uh, I wanted to do it because I was looking at all this data on um, um, data on everything from mood disorder to suicidal ideation to suicides over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, The thing about suicide, one of the things about suicide, which is peculiar, is that suicide rates are, remarkably consistent. They're culturally variable. You know, more Hungarians kill themselves than Austrians. It's not clear why. So it's not environmental factors. So there are things like that. There are cultural variations. There are gender variations, but it doesn't change that much. And it's um, it doesn't actually correspond in particular to uh, dire economic circumstances necessarily. So suicide is a kind of a constant feature. A certain percentage of people, but there's been this huge spike in rates in the last um, since, since 2012. And you know what's changed our lives since 2012? Well, the saturation of uh, the saturation of the market by smartphones. So is there a correlation between smartphone usage and everything from mood disorder to suicide? And I think the answer is yes, there is and And then, so what on earth are we going to do about that? You know, so in particular, the the, the 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 dramatic increase in suicide rates amongst teenage women, teenage girls, uh, has been particularly marked. Right? It's maybe less so with boys, but it's it's also marked there. So something is going on with technology, um, and it's making us feel awful, and it's driving certain people to take extreme measures. So uh, we need. To Think about
1: that. It's it's interesting that you also bring up technology. I I don't know if you know about these suicide nets and the sweatshops run by Apple in China. It's 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 incredible. And I think maybe maybe the focus should be a change in in system change instead of um, kind of just very much labeling things as, as mental illness. But I think I think it's true, this, that's true. this 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 comes back maybe to and this is perhaps a slightly ironic way to to bring this interview to its uh, to its conclusion but death is i think something that humans have uh for centuries you know tried to grapple with and and philosophy as as you write is 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 a way of of trying to perhaps deal with death i think people are maybe so shocked by by suicide because well People fear death so much, so to to willingly go into death is is perhaps slightly unintuitive. I was I I was reading your book, the book of dead philosophers, and which says maybe the main task of philosophy is is to prepare us for death. And I was I was wondering what maybe you can perhaps bring in Epicurus, but 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 Hamlet says you know the readiness is all. Which, which I think is is very apt, and and you know we can't run away from from death, and and perhaps then as as a, a closing segment to this to this interview, perhaps you can share some some words of wisdom on on death and what our attitudes to death should
2: be. All right, well, great. So uh, to philosophize is to learn how to die. I mean, that's the that's it. That's the, you know, it's an essay by Montaigne. He's quoting Cicero, but it goes back to Plato, Socrates. Kills himself. He is he has the choice. He could leave the city of Athens or uh take the hemlock. He takes the hemlock and then gives a long discourse on the immortality of the soul as he's topping himself. So philosophy begins with a suicide and it continues with um a a continuous meditation upon mortality. Philosophy is an is an art of dying, an ars moriendi. And um and the idea is that you know we are. Um, we are we are slaves to the fear of death, right? This is a point that uh, yeah, I think Montaigne puts it this way: we're slaves to the fear of death, and therefore freedom would consist in accepting our mortality, taking that into ourselves, and that's a a very peculiar thought because it means that freedom consists in accepting that you're determined by necessity, you're going to die. And, um, and, but I think, I think Montaigne says, you know, he who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. So freedom consists in accepting your being towards death, your mortality. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's powerful stuff. And that's, uh, you know, the main reason why, i think philosophy one of the main reasons why philosophy is 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 important and uh and in the book of Death philosophers i do that as a series of kind of a 190 jokes right i just uh, i had the use of a great library at, um in los angeles and i just plowed through all this material and tried to do something that was serious and a bit funny and ridiculous at the same time epicurus um Epicurus, let me say what Epicurus's view was firstly, and then maybe what's wrong with it. Um, Epicurus is something, has something which is called the tetrapharmakos, the four-part cure, and the four-part cure is: um, don't fear God, um, don't worry about death, what is good is easy to get, and what is terrible is easy to endure. So what is good is easy to get and terribly easy to endure is that Epicurus, as opposed to the idea of Epicureanism, is not about, you know, eat, drink and be merry. It's about minimising your intake, right? So Epicurus was happy with a, uh, you know, a, a cup of barley water and a piece of bread. You should minimise your pleasures and that will make your pains easier to, to bear. That's There's that side of it. Don't fear God, because for Epicurus, God is, there's a God out there, but kind of in what he calls the interstices of being, kind of remotely somehow. So don't worry about God. And uh, don't worry about death, because when death is, you're not. And when you are, death is not. So why worry? And it's a neat argument, right? This is, you know, another way of curing yourself of the fear of death. But the sad thing about Epicurus is it doesn't ultimately work. You can say that to yourself: "Don't worry about death, uh, don't fear God," um, and yet you still you still worry. You're still torn apart by this fear, even if that's a you know five o'clock in the morning after a you know uh, a night out, and then suddenly you're struck by this this dread of of. Uh, of, of your of your dying and so i don't think you can will the terror of annihilation away we have to think about it accept it and uh, make it part of our day-to-day vocabulary and um you know I, I one thing i hate in particularly where i am in in um in the united states but it also i've noticed in britain too people talk about uh, people passing, passing. So and so passed. No, they're dead. <laughs> dead. It's uh, they were alive. Now they're dead. At least just just say the word. It's not. Um, there's nothing bad about saying the word. People die, and um, and what's important is how we uh, memorialise that. We we are very bad at. Uh, accepting death, dealing with death and even memorializing death right we don't know what to do um it seems to come as a constant surprise and um and yet it's going to come it's coming to us at a certain point and so we so philosophy can be a way of preparing for that i think it's a, 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 that's a that's that's a fine and noble way of thinking about philosophy
1: simon critchley uh i'm I'm shocked by how well read you are, first of all, perhaps shocked is the, is the wrong word, but um, this has been an extremely, extremely enlightening uh, discussion and, and really we wanted to extend a, a huge thanks for joining us today. Uh, you know, uh, for those listening, Simon's book is coming out in November on mysticism, which you guys, you can find the information in the description below. Uh, Thanks again, Simon, for joining us. And um, do you have any perhaps concluding thoughts for our audience?
2: No, thank you. Thank you, Lucas. And thank you. Thank you, Wally. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. I think it's, um, you know, philosophy is about serious existential stuff for me. It's, um, you know, I, I, I kind of came into it as a, an existentialist and I remain an existentialist. And it's not. Uh, it's not an. It's not about being smart or clever or even well read. It's about um, approaching things with 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 empathy and understanding and history with empathy and understanding and trying to, uh, and trying to do philosophy in a way that people will that will resonate with people. Um, you'll be able to pass on. So I mean, podcasts are a, a great way of doing it. I think that I think that the the internet has been terrible um, for human beings but actually good for philosophy because uh, and i think in particular with uh, with podcasts that the our eyes are tired because we're looking at things all the time and we 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 we're, we're drowned by these screens but somehow the ears are open and all you need to do philosophy to do philosophy is to have open ears so i think i think podcasts are a very good way of doing it so good luck with it and um i look forward to talking to you again sometime
1: well thank you very much simon and thank you to everyone listening be sure to like and subscribe to keep supporting the love podcast this has been season five episode three Next week, we'll be speaking to Stephen Pinker, so be sure to tune in for that. Okay, very good. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Simon.